Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to be talking about um, uh, an energy cost analysis of water from different sources. So in my presentation, I'll give you some background on what those different water sources are. I'll look at how membranes are used in water treatment. And then I'm going to look at some case studies. I'll look at Beckton, which is in the east of London, taking river water from the Thames in a little bit of detail. I'll briefly mention a couple of other case studies in California on wastewater reuse and seawater desalination. And then I'll look at some energy treatment transfer and distribution calculations. So um, in this slide, we see a hierarchy, if you like, of water sources going from easy at the top with the fresh water through moderately difficult with water which contains salinity. And then at the bottom, the more difficult water, wastewater and reuse. So if we look at um, the um, types of fresh water, we, the, the, the most common source of water is surface water. I've identified two categories, if you like. There are many subdivisions of surface water that we can look at, but two categories, pristine waters, which by the name means it doesn't need very much treatment. You can put it into bottles and sell it. Uh, the trouble with it, it's far away from population centers. So it gives, although it's easy to treat, has low energy to treat, and is um, very desirable from that point of view, its overall energy footprint, if you like, is quite high because you tend not to live near where the water exists. Most people live in big urban centers and need the water to be brought to them. So the other type of surface water with which we're much more familiar um, are the lowland rivers. Uh, Oxford is fed from the River Thames through a large local water treatment work, so it will be typical. And as you go down further along the Thames, you'll find all the cities are heavily reliant on that as a water source. These lowland rivers are likely to be strongly affected by treated wastewater discharging into the river, and so lowland rivers need a lot of treatment. That's more energy. But the advantage is that they're going to be close to where, where they're needed. Um, the next type of freshwater I've identified, groundwater, um, either falls in the category of renewable or non-renewable, if renewable, so this is, these are groundwaters which will be replenished by activity on the surface, but then again, they could be influenced by the surface and agricultural activity or other activity could um, uh, uh, diminish the, uh, the quality of the groundwater. The, the groundwaters which are uh, in extremely good condition are unfortunately non-renewable and effectively taking water from those sources is like mining. Once you take it out, it will not be replenished. We then go on to what we would describe as the alternative sources, so saline waters, which could be brackish, uh, groundwater aquifers, 
uh, which can be influenced by saline intrusion because we tend to have tended to over abstract these sources and in fact um, with with groundwaters there's a, a very um, strict limit now in uh, highly populated areas on the amount of abstraction that uh, can be allowed um, also on the surface lowland rivers can be affected by increased salinity especially in low rainfall areas so it may be necessary to take salinity uh, out from these sources and then uh, Robert mentioned that a lot of population is near the coast and so uh, seawater is becoming a more uh, investigated option uh, to provide water for coastal cities. If you locate your plant on an estuary that's a good thing to do because the salinity is lower. Uh, the disadvantage is so that reduces the energy cost because of the lower salinity but the disadvantage is the salinity may vary with the tide and that will uh, give some degree of technical difficulty. And then last but not least wastewater reuse uh, we have to treat wastewater for disposal anyway. If you put a bit more energy into it, you could consider reusing it, um, and so that can be an attractive option. So, broadly speaking, we can categorize our drivers in water resource development into three areas, scarcity, legislation, and the driver for energy efficiency. So, scarcity... Um, for some considerable time, and I've said since the 1970s, it's been very common to use reverse osmosis um, in arid areas such as the Middle East. Now reverse osmosis is being used um, in many parts of the world, particularly California, Australia, and the northeastern coastal uh, region in China. Uh, and wastewater reuse is now emerging. So these um, developments are really in response to the uh, overall water resource uh, scarcity driver. Uh, the next driver category, which if you like started to come into play from the 1990s onward, is legislative. So there was a lot of legislation introduced in the beginning of the 1990s, uh, which really opened up the market for membranes in water. Um, in Robert's earlier slide of the, the, the grand sweep of time of membranes being applied in water, which went back to 1959, there's been a lot of activity over 50 years. Actually, it's the last 15 years or 20 years where we've seen the very wide-scale adoption of membranes, and it's mainly in response to this legislative driver, which developed during the 1990s. The next um, area in which I think there could be more drivers is this area of emerging contaminants. Emerging contaminants are man-made chemicals. Uh, we find them uh, difficult to break down in wastewater treatment because they're designed quite often not to be broken down easily. And it could require nanofiltration membranes to actually physically remove these. So that'll well, that could well be the next big trend of legislative driver for membranes in water treatment. And then the last thing I'm identifying here is that energy cost in alternative resource development is 
uh, too high at the moment, desalination energy in particular, and there's a strong driver now for developing lower energy options uh, for recovering water from uh, saline uh, in particular and uh, other sources um, to try to reduce the energy footprint of these developments. So I've uh, created a rather busy slide here to try to capture a lot of information. Um, so I hope you can, um, you can follow it. What we're looking at is three pie charts. So the one on the top right refers to 2005. The one on the bottom right refers to 2011. And the one over here uh, refers to 2030. Uh, the data have been collected from global water intelligence reports published in 2005 and 2014. So what they're showing us is, well, firstly, these pies are becoming bigger, and they're becoming bigger at the rate of 1.5% per annum. So that is the general growth of water use within, within the world. Um, so basically, populations grow, economic development leads to more requirement for, for water per capita. On the other hand, there are some trends working against that, which is there is uh, conservation of water and attempts to reduce water usage as well. And when you balance all those factors out, you come to this growth of 1.5% per annum. So a small, modest, but inexorable increase in the amount of water we need. So where does that water come from? So uh, you'll notice that there's fewer colors in the earlier data than in the later data, and the later data gave a more precise breakdown. Basically, two-thirds of our water comes from the surface. This was back in 2005, and the trend is quite similar even in, uh, in the later years, uh, rising a little bit at the moment, perhaps falling back a little bit um, uh, in the future. In these graphs, the blue section is called proximate surface water. So this is pr surface water which is assumed to be close-ish to where it's needed, so doesn't have to be taken uh, on huge distances. The little tiny orangey uh, slice there, a very small proportion of all our water is uh, uh, characterized by this term long distance transfer. So this would refer to water within California, for example, which is the best current example of long distance transfer where the water comes from the Colorado River um, or, the, or from Northern California to Southern California. Uh, there's also a development in China called the South-North Transfer Project, um, and that is coming into, um, into usage and is what is going to cause an increase of this um, uh, in 2030 by about a factor of three. There are also some other long-distance transfer projects in arid areas in, in the Middle East. Um, <clears throat> When we look at the energy analysis, you will see that long distance transfer is a very bad idea energetically and one that we should do everything we can to avoid. 
Um, and it's good that it doesn't form a larger proportion of our water supply. It's disappointing to see that it is uh, expected to increase in this time period. Um, and, uh, and it's uh, unfortunate that um, alternative resource development is not increasing more rapidly uh, to make that unnecessary. Um, so surface waters forming a fairly constant two-thirds of our use. So one-third of our use, in this case the green slice, um, in these cases I've split the groundwater into the green and purple slices, the green here being renewable and the purple being non-renewable. It's about a third of water requirements. Um, Clearly, non-renewable groundwater is eventually going to run out, so we don't want to see this part of the pie increasing. Unfortunately, we do see it increasing according to this projection, so this is something that is going to have to be reversed in the long term. Um, and the alternative sources, so the new sources of seawater desalination, municipal wastewater reuse, did form a very small proportion between them about half a percent of all supply in 2005 increasing by about a factor of three to about one and a half percent in 2011 increasing by a further a factor of three by 2030 um, so um, ultimately this non um, this alternative resource will have to increase much more because ultimately it would have to provide all of the requirement of the mined groundwater, the non-renewable, and also it would have to provide some of, of this requirement as well. So the prediction is that alternative sources will increase uh, dramatically um, in, the, in the coming years. So now let's, uh, we've looked at water sources, we're going to quickly look at uh, uh, membranes in water treatment, first used in the 60s, rapid expansion in the 1990s, uh, that led to price reduction, and because of price reduction, there was uh, uh, even more uh, uh, um, uh, dramatic uptake of, of uh, membrane technology within uh, the water treatment markets. Um, the current uh, perceptions of uh, alternative resources are that desalination is, is too energy intensive to be widespread, wastewater reuse, public acceptance concerns, um, but membrane filtration has a key role um, in both of these areas. It's a standard pretreatment technology in wastewater reuse and is becoming uh, very widely used in desalination and the key issue has been to achieve stable operation and controlled fouling uh, by correct selection of sustainable flux, um, as Robert has uh, described. Um, <clears throat> so in freshwater, we're using membrane filtration as a fine particle removal filter and for RO pretreatment. And these uh, tend to be, I'm afraid it's very faint here, but that says porous membranes. So these are fine sieves. For saline water, we use dense membranes which are continuous layers, and then we're able to remove uh, salts. And the membrane bioreactor that Robert referred to is the combination 
of membrane filtration with a biological aeration process. Um, the applications that we use uh, water, uh, membranes in water, we use UF and MF in drinking water to meet this legislative requirement. There's some use of RO and there's a limited opportunity and perhaps that's going to be an opportunity that increases which is the use of nanofiltration for pesticides and other emerging contaminants. Industrial water, there's quite widespread uh, use of membranes uh, and desalination is now dominated by membranes. It used to be thermal processes and, and wastewater reuse also dominated by membranes. <clears throat> so now I want to go on to uh, look at a case study. Uh, this is a case study in the east of London at a plant called Bexon. Uh, when the desalination community heard that uh, there was to be a desalination plant in London, there was incredulity, to say the least, because everybody in the world thinks of London as being cold and damp. Of course, we know that it's cold, damp and crowded, and so the, the high population density is what gives the requirement for developing alternative sources. Um, so, and although uh, uh, reputed to have a damp climate, in fact, the rainfall in London is, is very low. Um, so there has been a plant at Beckton. Um, it takes water from the uh, river. Uh, initially, it was linked to the development of what they call the Thames Gateway, which is the eastern side of London development and the Olympics. Um, it's a tidal estuary abstraction. It's a large capacity plant um, expected to be used in what they call designed dry conditions, which are low, low rainfall times. Um, it, the salinity is about a third of seawater, worst case, and about a tenth of seawater, best case. So seawater is about 35,000 TDS. So this plant normally runs with about 3,000. Um, so it's been on stream since March 2010, but normally runs at very, uh, very low outputs, actually. Um, so there's the location. It's in the tidal part of the Thames, but quite a bit from the estuary. Uh, this is a, a process flow drawing of the plant. Originally, the plant had a relatively conservative design with conventional pretreatment technology uh, and RO membranes. Um, when um, actually installed, they switched from the conventional pretreatment to UF. Um, uh, and they were able to do that because there was a delay in the project, which I'm just going to describe to you. Um, for those who, of you who know about your disinfection chemicals, you'll be interested to see that the plant was going to use chlorine for its disinfection, and it, that was actually switched to chlorine dioxide uh, during the project as well. So now this plant is an interesting one and the reason I've, uh, I've highlighted it is because from a sustainability point of view it was strongly criticised by the Mayor of London to the point that he, uh, th this was Ken Livingstone at the time, he uh, carried out a legal challenge against the plant and he criticised Thames Water very strongly over three issues. 
which was supply management, leakage management, and demand management. On the supply side, he said there were other things that could be looked at on the resources and that the company should be looking at wastewater reuse rather than desalination of the river water. On the leakage side, uh, he said that Thames had a very poor record, so we're treating all this water but then wasting it. Um, and that was a position that was supported by the UK government regulator. And then on the demand side, so controlling the way that people use water, uh, he said, well, they're not being strong enough in um, providing uh, metering uh, and encouraging people to take up metering. Um, and, and they were unambitious in trying to get people to reduce their consumption. So there was a, a lengthy court case uh, around 2005, but Thames Water eventually won that and the project was able to restart after, a, a, after a, a, a delay. But it did allow the issues of sustainability in wastewater reuse to come strongly under the spotlight. Um, Thames Water, on the position of wastewater reuse, said that wastewater reuse is inflexible compared with desalination and the plant has to be run at a baseline flow. Um, they were also concerned with um, the, whether the wastewater would remove those emerging contaminants I spoke about. They were concerned about whether the public would accept it. Um, and they said that the energy use of the scheme that they had planned for the estuary was not much higher than wastewater reuse uh, anyway. Um, the Mayor of London w w well, disagreed with that and said, well, the energy of reuse is, is lower um, and that uh, they do actually have a, a wastewater reuse scheme at Essex and Suffolk, which is very, very close to where this plant is located. Um, and um, uh, the mayor also uh, took time to be very insulting about Thames Water um, and the way that they manage this whole process as well. Um, but in the end, Thames Water uh, won this, this debate. And so uh, we will then go on to see in the calculation where that energy uh, cost fits into the overall um, uh, spectrum of, uh, of options. And the last thing I want to do is just quickly look at a couple of um, opportunity upper um, um, alternative resource developments in California. So rather the opposite end of the spectrum to London, it's here we're warm, uh, sunny, but a very dry and arid climate. So they've looked at wastewater reuse in Orange County in Los Angeles, and this is taking wastewater from the LA area and recharging the aquifer. So treating the wastewater, pumping it back into the aquifer to stop saline intrusion from the sea. Um, so I won't dwell on the details of that. And then just tell you very quickly about a seawater desalination project in Carlsbad. This is in Southern California, um, where they've located um, a seawater desalination plant um, uh, just outside of Carlsbad. Again, a very large plant, um, and this will be on stream in 2015. Um, <clears throat> so I want to go using those case studies and some other data. I've compiled this table 
of what wastewater energy looks like. Um, so there's rather a lot of numbers on this table, and we're going to look at a much simpler chart in a second. I'll just point out one or two things on this table first, that surface waters have low treatment energy of about 0.15 to 0.3 kilowatt hours per cubic meter. If you multiply that by a factor of three, you then encompass most of these wastewater scenarios and brackish water scenarios with a, an energy, a treatment energy of about one kilowatt hour per cubic meter. When you go on to desalination of an estuary, it's about 1.67, and of seawater, depending upon the location of the seawater, it could be quite a bit higher. So that gives you an idea of where these all fit in. Um, I'll, I'll just, just show you this chart first before I come back to that other slide. That we, at, so the low energy, so this is fresh water, which is what we do at the moment, mainly, has a very low energy footprint, whether from ground or from surface. Groundwater is less uh, than surface. Wastewaters, we're up about this one kilowatt hour per cubic meter. If we have to use nanofiltration for emerging contaminant removal, uh, that's about two-thirds of the energy of wastewater. So if we had to do that for all of our water supply across uh, the world, it would have a, a dramatic effect on the energy usage of the water industry worldwide. Um, but it's, but it, it, it is less, the, less energy than um, going fully over to alternative uh, sources such as wastewater reuse. The Thames Water Beckton project on this height, it's a sort of log scale you'll see because I'm, I'm multiplying by a factor of three as I go uh, in each uh, portion of this curve. So um, the, the, the Thames Water Beckton is more energy intensive than wastewater reuse but quite a bit less energy intensive than a full-scale um, seawater desalination plant. So before I explain those distribution and transfer energies, let's just have a look at one or two calculations here. It gives some examples of what the distribution and transfer energy is in California for the two long-distance transfer projects. Uh, one of them is called the State Water Project, bringing the water from the north of the state to the south and it's got an energy of just under two and a half kilowatt hours per cubic meter. So that's equivalent to seawater desalination, basically. So it's a very considerable energy cost to do a long distance transfer. And the other long distance transfer is from the Colorado River, which runs along near the Nevada state line. So that water has to come over some mountain ranges before it comes into LA and Southern California. That's got an energy of about 1.6 kilowatt hours per cubic meter. So these are very substantial energy in comparison with the energy cost of alternative sources. Um, just to give you some UK examples, the cost of our energy transfer in, um, in the London area is relatively small. 
Um, however, when you add in the cost of leakage, the cost of uh, getting pressure at a customer's tap, the cost of pumping water around the ring main around London, the overall cost for distribution is about 0.6. So long distance transfer 1.6 to 2.5, distribution about 0.6. So when you look at what does this, how does this compare against treatment, you can see that long distance transfer is as bad, if you like, as seawater desalination. So really, there are very few circumstances in which you should justify long distance transfer because even desalinating the seawater locally would be better and wastewater reuse locally would be much, much better. If you have an estuary type option, um, it's not nearly so bad, but it's still more energy intensive than wastewater reuse. Um, the distribution cost in a situation like we have in the south of England is significant compared with treatment energy. Um, there's probably not a lot you can do about that if you've got um, an old distribution system like we tend to have in this country with um, losses uh, and, and leakage losses, etc. So, in conclusion, um, membranes are well established within, um, within the water industry. They're, they're um, absolutely essential for wastewater in that uh, they provide a barrier and allow the possibility of reuse. Um, the wastewater reuse market is growing rapidly and, and provides uh, a lot of potential for uh, membrane technologies. Um, another point I wanted to make, though, is that the um, energy cost of um, reuse is, is um, below that of um, uh, desalination. And um, I'm just trying to... I don't think I've... Um, I just wanted to point out that um, when you consider that if you have one kilowatt hour per cubic meter for reuse, that includes two steps in the process. That includes the conventional activated sludge energy. You're going to need to put that into wastewater anyway because you've got to do that so that you can throw it away. You can dispose of it to a river. You can dispose of it to the environment. You've spent half the energy of wastewater just getting it to a position where you can throw it away. If you spend the other half of the energy, you can then get it to a position where you can reuse it. And so if you look at it like that, in fact, reuse is a very energy effective option. Um, and uh, so membrane bioreactors, I'm pointing out here, have a slightly higher energy cost than uh, conventional treatment followed by membrane processes. Distribution and transfer energy, very significant costs. And generally, um, the experience of using membranes uh, from the case studies in wastewater reuse and desalination have uh, provided a good experience and shown that membranes are robust and can be effectively used 
uh, with these types of feeds. Thank you very much for your attention.